I just love that in this very short amount of time, you have an enslaved man, his two sons become surgeons. And that's just in one generation. And then it's, it's not ancient history. It's, it's very, very near history. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. On this episode of Tell Me About Your Father, Erin and Elizabeth talk to Natalie Cash Peterson, a New York City-based film producer for an international conservation organization, about the incredible success stories of her maternal grandfather, Dr. David Griffin, and his brother, her great-uncle, Dr. Joseph Howard Griffin. Joseph Howard, who went by J.H., and David were near-mythic figures in Peterson's family for the obstacles they overcame. They were two sons of an enslaved father who became trailblazing physicians in South Georgia, both prosperous and celebrated members of their communities during the sustained racial terror of the post-Reconstruction South. The success of the particularly wealthy J.H. was so unusual in South Georgia at the time, it led some of her family members to ask questions that couldn't be answered by relatives. Her late cousin Hugh Pearson, a journalist for the Wall Street Journal, was inspired to look deeper into J.H. and in 2000 published the book Under the Knife, How a Wealthy Negro Surgeon Wielded Power in the Jim Crow South. Peterson tells Erin and Elizabeth what her cousin's research uncovered, and discusses Brunswick, Georgia, where her grandfather David practiced as the city's first black doctor, and where, on February 23, 2020, 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed by a white father and son while he was out jogging. After the murder of Arbery and the subsequent murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor by police, How can Americans call for healing when wounds keep being torn open afresh? Listen as Peterson shares the stories of two family patriarchs set against the painful legacy of slavery and black oppression and what that family history means to her today. I remember growing up hearing that, you know, oh, well, slavery was 400 years ago. Like, why are you still going on about this? Why do black Americans constantly turn it back to slavery? And you're just kind of going like, in 2026, we'll celebrate the 250th anniversary of this country. So if the country's not even 250 years old, how can you say it's 400 years ago? Like slavery ended 400 years ago. So we're going back to like 1619, like the first one's arriving and then it stops. It's like, no, it was just getting rolling, baby. It's, it's fascinating, especially when you see, you know, people marching with the Confederate flag. But at the same time, they'll say, you need to get over slavery. It's like, well, you need to get over losing your slaves. <laughs> <laughs> So I just, I'm always stunned by that. And then you realize when it's founded, it's founded, you know, we the people and we the people, that definition was so narrow when it started out. It was just landowners and to own land, you had to be white. So it was a very small subset of white men who could vote. And over time, we've moved towards a more perfect union. We've moved towards equal rights for all. But, you know, for so much of the history of this country, whether it's women voting or blacks having the right to vote, it's like, this is very near history. I'm in an interracial marriage, and my marriage would have been illegal up until the year before I was born. So I'm just like, how do they always say that it's 400 years ago. It really isn't. And I think, you know, our family is a living embodiment of that. I remember being a little bit ashamed of it in high school that our family tree was so small. 
And, you know, you'd have these second grade assignments with the paint and the stickers and the glue and, you know, the apples or whatever. And you would put, you know, the names on there. And these people would have branches going back to Europe. And, and you know, maybe oh, we found some like distant relation who may have been a cousin to the third duke of the something something. <laughs> and you're like, well, <laughs> I'm like, we can trace it back to an enslaved man in mm-hmm. Torrey, Alabama. And this was my great-great-grandfather. So his name was William. He had two boys. My great-grandfather, Robert Daniel, and his brother. And they called him Shorter. So my great-grandfather was William. His brother was Shorter. I'm not sure of the dates of when William was born, but I do know my great-grandfather was born in 1843. And so he didn't know his mom because she had been sold away during, I think that they said she was sold right before the beginning of the Civil War. So they didn't find her after the Civil War. So you imagine you're born in 1843. In 1863, you're 20 years old when the Civil War breaks out. So he's he's not fully grown, but he's a young man. But then after the war, now he's 22, they leave Troy, Alabama. So John Lewis's family, as everyone knows the boy from Troy, they stay in Troy, Alabama. My grandfather's family, I should say my great-great-grandfather and my great-grandfather move to Georgia, to Stewart County, Georgia, very poor sharecropping county in Georgia. My great-grandfather had a first wife who bore him four children, and then she passed away. And so then he marries my great-grandmother. And she's like a 15-year-old girl. And we had some great stories from her. So she's 15. They get married. She's kind of just like one of the kids almost. She's like taking care of the kids, the four older ones. And then he'd be like, you want to come on up the stairs? And she's like, no, I'm fine. You want to come up the stairs? Like, no, I'm going to sleep down here. You come up the stairs? Finally, she goes upstairs. I didn't come down them stairs, so I have 12 children. So now there are 16 children. My grandfather, my mother's dad's name is David. David and his twin brother, Damon, are the last 15 and 16 of these 16 children. He's born in 1916. Of the 12 that are born to my great-grandmother, the oldest is my great-uncle. J.H. was 28 when my grandfather was born. So this is my grandfather's brother. And he had already served in the military in World War I and went to Meharry Medical School because that was the, the option available for Blacks that wanted to study medicine. I, I just love that in this very short amount of time, you have an enslaved man, his two mm-hmm. sons become surgeons. Mm-hmm. And that's wow. just in one generation. And then it's, wow. it's not ancient history. It's, it's very, very near history. So my grandfather, my mom's dad, and my grandmother, they divorce, right? So my mom goes and lives with her father, with my grandfather, David. And he is an army surgeon. And my mom's born in 1944, to kind of keep this in context. So my mom's born in 1944 to a man born in 1916. So David takes my mom, she's a young girl, maybe fifth grade, and she's living on a military base in Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri. And Truman doesn't integrate the troops until Mm -hmm. 1948. But when he does, military base life, is integrated. Mm -hmm. So my mom is living on a base, but she really misses um, her mom and her half-brothers because my grandmother had also been married previously to a black dentist, lived in Tuskegee, Alabama. So your family goes in a a generation from enslavement to medical school. And 
you know, J.H. J.H. is 28 years older than your grandfather, David. Yes. And and J.H. is almost like a father figure to, to David. Yes, he was like a father figure to all of the younger ones. J.H. was South Georgia's first black surgeon. J.H. actually got his expertise and cut his teeth in the pandemic of 1918. He, in the army, learned how to treat Spanish influenza and then brought that knowledge back to Bainbridge. So he was renowned just for being able to cure a pandemic that was devastating the country. It's such a similar moment that we find ourselves in now. Mm -hmm. In 1930, he opens his first hospital. He names it after his wife's father, who was also a prominent black dentist. His last name was Johnson. I I remember his name is Johnson because, you know, J.H. may have even delivered my grandfather. (laughs) you know, from his own mother. And so he he was good for picking names. So my grandfather's <laughs> name was David Johnson Griffin. But yeah, the Johnson Memorial Hospital opened in 1930 with 30 beds. And then in 1950, J.H. opens um, a 50-bed hospital. So these are very modern facilities. Uh, he had postcards printed up. J.H. had a car. Uh, J.H. has, and st- it's still standing there. And his daughter, my mom's cousin, Mary Louise, still lives there. She's in her 90s this beautiful house in Bainbridge. But yeah, he was the one that sent my grandfather off to Morehouse for undergrad and then helped him out through going to medical school at Meharry. So so he sends your so he sends your grandfather to Morehouse, which is incredible. And and then your grandfather and your great uncle, are they ever working together? Yes. So after Meharry, my grandfather decides to come back to Bainbridge and he's working at JH's hospital, but JH is the king of that roost. And so, you know, my grandfather, you know, he had to strike out on his own. And so he had joined the military. He traveled to meet my grandmother in Tuskegee. Then they split up. So then he's in Missouri. But J.H. is pretty much the the son of which everyone's orbiting in Bainbridge. And so my grandfather ends up in Brunswick, Georgia, on the coast, and first black physician in that town, and ends up serving on the Board of Education in that town, uh, serves as the medical examiner for Brunswick and the Three Golden Isles off of the coast of Georgia, which are pretty she-she, St. Simon Island, Sea Island, Jekyll Island. These are the islands where John F. Kennedy Jr. marries Carolyn Bissett. Mm. Um, so very, very beautiful islands, but pretty exclusive set. Tell us a little bit, going back to Brunswick as a little girl, your grandpa had a park named after him. He was just really respected. Man, what are your memories of the town of going to see him? What was Brunswick like? Brunswick was summer. We would go there. We had bikes we could ride. My aunt and uncle, David and Elaine, were my grandfather's children after his marriage, after my grandmother. Right. So they were only a few years older than us. So they were more like cousins than aunts and uncles. And so we always had bikes of theirs we could get on. I just remember being on bikes. And somehow in the summer in Georgia, at least in Brunswick, the ground, the asphalt was covered in frogs. And I just remember trying to weave between all these frogs. I don't know where they were going, if they were going to breed, eat, feed, get into some water. It was just the noise and sound of frogs and cicadas all summer long. And just being on bikes and then going down to the water. My grandfather had a boat. He loved to fish. He loved his cigars. And we'd go out on the water with him. And I just remember just that that feeling of sand, surf, bikes, wind, and frogs. It was hot. Georgia, you know, they say like the red clay of Georgia. It is. That ground is red. It is red and full of frogs. And (laughs) the state state fruit is a peach. 
and those peaches you would get on the stands because we'd drive there from Texas and mm. you'd just buy peaches on the side of the road and you'd bite into them and it was like popping a mm. tomato the whole thing would run juice down and drip off your elbow and I mean it was yeah it was just like a magical summer place and the places where, you know, we were and riding our bikes were like 10 miles from where Almond Aubrey was shot and killed. Brunswick, for people who are listening, might sound familiar uh, because Brunswick is the town where uh, a man named Ahmad Arbery was jogging in his neighborhood and stopped to look into a house that was under construction that was having work done on it and just just checking it out and then jogged away and some white uh, people in the neighborhood started following him, a father and a son and their neighbor. And they cornered him and they shot him and they killed him. That happened in February. And I don't think it really came to light until June. It came out in May because I remember May 8th was his birthday. Uh And they had asked people to to run the 2.3 two, three miles that he, the loop that he ran and, you know, to to bring attention to the fact that there was this horrifying video of him being shot and killed. And as the details come out, you realize this happens in February. It's April before we see it. And the people who murdered him had sent it in. They thought it justified their actions. So it wasn't even like a gotcha tape. It was, they thought that this was not even stand your ground that we thought he was guilty so we chased him in a truck with guns and when he tried to run away or fight back when we caught up with him we shot and killed him and here's the proof that we were in the right it was madness but at the same time i had seen walter scott get tased and shot in the back i had seen you know the video of eric garner but and that was here in the city where we live but somehow seeing it in brunswick it just, it landed really hard. And, and I mean, like, there's, there's so many. I mean, you think of all the names with Tamir and Trayvon and Sandra Bland, like these, these horrible cases, these names that just, they go on an endless scroll. But Ahmaud Aubrey was, was in my grandfather's town. I mean, Brunswick only has six neighborhood parks. And one of them to this day is named after my grandfather. My mom's half-sister, she lives there. It was just no, I had to sit down when I saw that video. I don't usually watch them. I, I'll be honest. It is a snuff film. And imagine being subjected to that. The Ahmed Aubrey was on a Twitter loop. Basically, I saw them run. I saw him be shot. I saw him run forward and I saw him fall down. And it went on an endless loop. Ahmad seems like such a higher class than these terrible people. They claim to be defending their houses or something. Yeah, they had had some, some burglaries in the neighborhood. And I remember it was, it had to be on Twitter. A woman posted and she's just like, I'm a white woman. She's like, if I got shot every time I got curious about a house being built and going in to see, she said, I'd been dead long ago. <laughs> just the fact that you have this connection to the town, that your your grandfather had this incredible career there and yeah. was able to succeed years ago during a time in our country that was so horrifyingly shut off to people of color, disenfranchising to Black people, violent with a capital V. It's like you you look at that and it, for me, it's like, how, how can we say that anything's changed? Do you feel like when you saw what happened with Ahmad, like 
Did you feel that sense? Yes. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say any, nothing has changed. I do feel that like those tendrils of the past, they have never, ever been resolved. Right. Mm -hmm. So my mom, they couldn't try on dresses. Right. This is a segregated town. But there was one Jewish store in Bainbridge where the girls could go into the back. He would let the girls in the back after hour to try on clothes. Right. So we're not there anymore. My marriage would have been illegal before the Lovings took their case to the Supreme Court. So we're not there. But at the mm -hmm. same time, my dad, my dad was born December 7th, 1941. Like their generation's 9-11. So he's the same age as Emmett Till. And Emmett Till, because my dad, you know, my mom's family's from the South, but my dad grew up in, in Mansfield, Ohio. So he wasn't in a segregated town. His town was integrated. Even his mother went to an integrated high school. So you realize these things are happening. But Emmett Till is a boy his age, and it shocked him to his core. And I remember when Trayvon was killed, thinking like, wow, it's not changing. You know, we were also watching When They See Us with the Central Park Five. Like, And at this same time, my son is becoming a teenager. He's 14 now, but all of a sudden I'm realizing things are very different for him of how he's going to be perceived in the world. And so you go on that high alert and you start having the talks with them. And so in that sense, I don't think it's changed because I cannot look my son in the eye after Trayvon Martin, after Emmett Till and Ahmed Aubrey. I can't look him in the eye and say, no one can kill you for no reason and get away with it because they can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously with Ahmed, we had the videotape, which to me plays like those old lynching postcards. But with Trayvon, there was audio. There was audio and this man was still acquitted. And that was one of the first rallies I took my kids to was when George Zimmerman was acquitted. So in that sense, no, it hasn't changed. Moms, we still have to really look after our boys and have them be mindful of how they're perceived. And my husband is white. And so I have three great uh, stepchildren. The twins, they're adopted from Ethiopia. So they're full black. They're as black, black Americans. They, they, we've been back to Ethiopia, but they're perceived and they're raised as black Americans. And I'm like, our son can't get away with the same things that the two older boys can get away with because the older boys are in, in Brooklyn and in Williamsburg, you know, they're, they're hip. They can <laughs> roll out of, you know, the house in their pajamas and a ripped shirt and go get a coffee with the hair all over their head. I'm like, Menno, if he tries to do this, would get either, a, he, they would think he was homeless. Mm. They potentially would call the cops on him and he might not get service. It's that Harold. That peril is still there. And I remember wanting to ask my dad after Carolyn Bryant in the Emmett Till case admitted that she lied, mm -hmm. how, how that affected him. Because I do wonder yeah. if one day George Zimmerman will admit he just killed Trayvon because he was didn't belong there, which is what happened to Ahmed Aubrey. Mm -hmm. Right. When you met your husband, because he obviously had children before, mm -hmm. you said, did... Did you pay attention to the way he fathered? Was Did that factor into the decision to partner? Oh, yeah. It was, it was funny. When my husband and I got married, I said, well, you know, I want to be a mother. And he had the three older children, two boys and a girl who I adore. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's not going to be the same as raising white children. Well, I think you were kind of, it could be a little more hands off. You can't do that. And then I wasn't able to biologically have children and we ended up adopting from Ethiopia. And it's funny because my husband's from a Massachusetts family. 
His dad was the chair of the English department at Smith College. His mom was a Democratic delegate from Massachusetts, like super politically engaged, involved in their school. So, you know, he kind of grew up in, in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I was like, we're going to be raising Black children in New York City. So are you, are you up for this? Like, I have a lot to teach you about what that is and what that's going to be for them. But yeah, no, he's fully on board. He's learned so so much about the black community and my folks love him my sister and brother love him you know all the cousins and uncle mark they all adore him but yeah racism affects everyone white americans don't want to live in a racist america most do not most do not the vast majority do not we adopted the twins from ethiopia when they were 16 months old they are going to be 15 in a few weeks (laughs) the kids are great they're super Mm -hmm. engaged and smart But through the the pandemic and kind of the social unrest and the George Floyd murder, my daughter's really become an activist, whereas Minnow is is a little, you know, he's he's aware of it, but it's not as easy for him to talk about because suddenly he realizes he's the prey in most of these stories. And it really came home for him one Friday night after school. He had gone home with some dear friends that live down Grand Street from us, and they were just there playing card games, magic. He's like literally the nerdiest thing you can imagine. And so he's coming back home up Grand Street and he pulls his hoodie around his head to keep his ears warm. So it's dark now. And he sees these young girls coming out of Temple. It's Friday night and they cross the street and he gets terrified. It's dark. These girls, they cross the street. He's like looking behind them and he starts to cross with them until he realizes they're crossing the street because of him. Mm -hmm. And he's telling us this and we're like, oh, you know, how does that make you feel? That's got to be a little traumatic. And he was just like, yeah, you know, he didn't want to talk about it too much. But I know that these things are at play a a little differently for him because the subject of most of these killings are are, are black men. He could have walked up and down that street until he was age 10. He could even if he was younger, that someone would come to him and be like, are you okay? Where are your parents? I find that happens a lot to black children that you get about 10 years of childhood and that's it. And that's about it. And then after 10, things change. And by 12, you'll sense discomfort in elevators, but they need to be aware of it. And I always tell them, like, you just need to be super mindful now that you look like a young man. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the questions that people are grappling with now, Mark had to deal with them early on to parent two young Black children. Mm. So, so back to the story of your family. You mentioned a book that your cousin Hugh wrote called Under the Knife. Yes. Can you tell us about Hugh and, uh, and then tell us about what, what is in the book and what he discovered through writing this book? Right. I have a cousin and had written a book about J.H.'s life. Her name is Barbara Cotton. And she wrote a book, Non-Verba Opera, basically not words, but deeds, like, you know, not not talk, but action. And that was J.H.'s life, did extensive Mm -hmm. audio recordings with J.H. and and wrote this story a bit mystical, reinforcing the myth and just all the great works that that J.H. did about the hospital and the family. And now another cousin, Hugh Pearson, who was one of the first black editorial writers for the Wall Street Journal. And then Hugh comes along and writes Under the Knife after J.H. had passed. And the whole premise of Under the Knife 
is how does this young black boy born in 1888 find the steel to become a surgeon and a landowner and um, a hospital owner? And if, if this would have been someone with that kind of drive and white in those times, not in the Jim Crow South, they would have been like a Carnegie or mm. like some, some great man who history would have recorded. And so Hugh's premise in writing the book was that behind every great fortune, there must be some crime. And he wanted to get to the bottom of what was it about J.H. that allowed him to amass such wealth? Because, you know, he he had shares in Coca-Cola. He was the largest benefactor at that time to Meharry Medical School, the all-black medical school. So he wanted to know, was there a crime that, that allowed him to amass the wealth, the fortune, the land, the, the, the reputation? And he wanted to find out what kind of man he was. So he travels back to Bainbridge. He's talking to J.H.'s surviving daughter, again, who is still alive, Mary Louise Griffin. But he also does more digging. Uh, he speaks to some other people around town. And he finds that J.H., in addition to being a great doctor, also took chickens for payment, took peanuts for payment from the harvest. But he also took land and deeds to home. And if you couldn't pay, J.H. would collect. Mm. He also found, and this was a court case, that J.H., before it was legal, had been performing abortions. And they took J.H. to trial when he was 79 years old. And J.H. managed to keep his medical license. But this was something, it's hard to even imagine. Well, actually, it's not hard to imagine now that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed that abortion would be illegal. But yeah. it was illegal then, and women didn't have a lot of options. And here was a man who had a stellar facility, a hospital of his own, beds, surgical suites in the Jim Crow South. And so not only did he provide abortions for black women, he also provided them for co-eds from Florida, white wow. co-eds from Florida. So I'm sure that this was something that they were going to try and get him on. He was found guilty by an all-white jury, but he was allowed to keep his medical license. Um, and abortion was legalized two years later, I think. 73 yeah. for Roe v. Wade, right? Oh, 73? Yes. Yes. So oh, Jake yeah. was taken to court in 1968. Yeah. So it would still be five more years before women would be. But I mean, things for women were so different. You couldn't have credit cards. There's, there were so many things you couldn't have in your name. It's just hard to even imagine because my mom, growing up, she was a nurse and she went to, and she finished nursing school when we were toddlers, she had three toddlers and she went to nursing school. And then when we went to high school, she became a lawyer. She went back to law school, which I what? honestly think was just to get out of the house from us to have three children, teenagers. So she could save lives in multiple ways. And that's <laughs> yes. just your mom alone. Yes. Just by being out of the house, she saved three lives. My brother, me, <laughs> my <son>. <laughs> <laughs> no, So she did not strangle us. Yeah, no, she's she's amazing. Um, she's uh, a, a law professor at Texas Southern University at the Thurgood Marshall School of Law. There, my sister is the only double board certified plastic surgeon in the state of Texas. So not a small state. She's board certified in general surgery, like my grandfather, and plastic surgery. Wow! Whoa! Because they have a lot of plastic surgery in Texas. So you would think that somebody <laughs> would be double board certified in a general service, you yeah. know? 
Yeah. She's the first black female. She's the first black That's female. That's awesome. And what's first, your sister's name? Camille Cash. So back to this fascinating discovery by Hugh and the mm-hmm. book, the history of the treatment of, of black Americans by the medical profession, mm-hmm. the horrendous legacy of the dehumanization of african-americans at the hand of 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 doctors right you mentioned Uh, the tuskegee before exactly Mm -hmm. where those horrific syphilis experiments were and it's funny because you hear strains of that with the coronavirus pandemic today like is this something else they've unleashed to attack the black community but Mm -hmm. there's a long history of this i I remember in new york when they were first taking down the statues and doing this the monuments commission and reassessing the statues they had marion sims who used to perform like Mengele type operations on on black women. But in Tuskegee, they they kind of perfected it. They infected men with syphilis, did not tell them they were doing this, and Mm -hmm. then just let it ravage the body to see what it did. So that kind of history of experimentation on the black community is something that people kind of carry in the back of their minds even still today. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was Tuskegee. And my grandmother was a nurse at the VA hospital. She was a, I'm sorry, she was a dental technician at the VA hospital in Tuskegee. But even in Tuskegee, that legacy of experimentation on Blacks was prevalent. But J.H., you know, he was very respected too. They, the Black doctors in the South, and there's a great book about Black physicians in the Jim Crow South by Thomas J. Ward Jr. that really goes into the history of, of Black physicians, the burial societies, the insurance societies, because again, you're talking about after Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal, right? So there are two different Americas living side by side. So you had a black grocer, you had a black doctor, a black dentist, if you could afford those things, right? And that's where you went, but you had your own black society. And you had to still travel in a white world. And there was a kind of that, that brief period of reconstruction before the black codes and the Jim Crow laws come, come raining down. So a doctor, even like my grandfather or my grandfather's brother, J.H., would have to treat people who couldn't make it in, that maybe the, the donkey cart broke down or they're rural, you know, or they're still out in Stewart County. And so to drive to those people, you had to know, can I get gas here? Can I sleep here? There was the whole movie Green Book, but I remember green Mm. books at my grandfather's house like they had to know where a black business had opened up they could get a sandwich on the way back a tailor you're on the road there's no cell phone there's no ways there's no wayfinding app you need to know where you're going to be safe and Mm. i mean there's also the fact that if you did too well then you could invite your own destruction so you see what happens in tulsa you couldn't get too they would call it uppity. Couldn't get too uppity. But J.H., I'm actually like looking at a, a page from this book, and mm. it's a page about J.H., and it said he was a well-known abortion doctor throughout Georgia, Florida, Alabama. And whites liked to go for him for abortions because, first, no one would hear about it since they traveled in different social circles. And second, because he had his own hospital, you knew it was going to be done well. So it, it, it you did have to straddle those two worlds. Yeah, But it wasn't just a white clientele, like black women as well. If you had means, abortion has always been about who has the means. So to Hugh's thesis that behind every great fortune is is a crime or every great success story is a crime, it seems like then that J.H.'s big quote-unquote crime was risking himself, his life, his business to 
afford women of the time, both black and white, agency over their own bodies. Well, let's just say you found his crime. <laughs> well, his quote, his quote unquote crime. We'll put his crime quote in unquote crime. He but, was just but, like, you know, to amass that, were you doing something illegal? And how were you so protected? There were other doctors that did this. Maybe others shied away because they didn't want the reputation. JH had his own kingdom. He had his own 50-bed hospital. Gotcha. So. Do you think that the fact that JH was doing abortions win him favor with people in high places and keep him protected, do you think? No, I think it was more because he was a model citizen. I mean, he was self-made. He built those hospitals with his own money. So JH was really respected in not just Bainbridge, Georgia, but throughout Southern Georgia. When he opened the 50-bed hospital, the one named after him, the editor of the Atlanta Constitution Journal, Ralph McGill, came. And he heralded it, J.H., as a story of progress, right? I can even, because it's in this little note card I have, and it's like the Honorable Ralph McGill, editor of the Atlantic Constitution, writing in his column in the Deep South, said, Deep in southwest Georgia, not far from Florida's capital city of Tallahassee, I found a meaningful American story. It was at Bainbridge, Georgia. Dr. Joseph H. Griffin formally opened his new hospital. It cost a quarter of a million dollars to construct and equip. He financed it all himself. There are no government funds in it. It is his. Dr. Griffin is a Negro. His parents were hardworking farmers near Lumpkin. He literally came out of the soil of the South, fighting his way to an education by working until he had graduated as a physician from the famed Meharry Medical School College in Nashville, Tennessee. There's a meaning beyond the opening of a new hospital. It is a symbol of a Negro's earnest desire to make an accepted contribution to the development of the South, his hope for maximum development in the professions and crafts. So J.H. was seen, and, and again, why the legend continued to build. And I don't want to strip away, like my talking about J.H. at all is not to find a crime, to find what he did wrong. I'm extraordinarily mm. proud of both J.H., my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and my great-great-grandfather for getting the heck up out of Troy, Alabama after yeah. the Civil Wars. And then as a woman, a Black woman, that he was performing abortions and giving women the agency over their own bodies at a time right. when even just touching a white woman could have gotten lynched in Georgia. I'm fiercely right. proud, fiercely proud of J.H. The fact that he was giving white women and Black women agency over their bodies at the same time, Black yeah. women were constantly gynecologically experimented on the term, the Mississippi appendectomy, which is a sterilization that they were just subjecting African-American women to whenever they felt like it, essentially, they being white doctors, um, yeah. which is also still going on. Yes. Now it's happening at the ICE facilities yeah. on the border. Yes. Yes, I yeah. mean, I mean, look at Henrietta Locks with the HeLa cells. They took her cells and and her <sighs> descendants. They've created medicines. People have made fortunes off of yeah. the HeLa cells. Not Henrietta Locks' family. Not until the book was written. So mm-hmm. yeah, the the medical community it's fraught with these tales of of experimentation. You bring up the the Mississippi appendectomy because that's what happened to Fannie Lou Hamer. She, she'd gone in for, I don't know if it was appendicitis or some other case. And, and then they tell her husband while she's recovering, we, we've given her a hysterectomy. She'd never had children of her own biologically. She adopted two girls. Mm. But she said, Fannie Lou said, that one in six women where she was from, that's what happened to them. Mm. Now, imagine that's you and the ability to have children is taken from you. 
it's just unfathomable. But I mean, this was this was a prevalent practice to sterilize the undesirables. What would you like the men in your family's legacy to be? And ultimately, what kind of parents were they? We still have family reunions. And so mm-hmm. it's something that we, we talk about all the time. I know that the legacy that J.H. and my grandfather, David, and even going back to my great-grandfather, Robert Daniel, was to be of service to others. And that is a legacy that it carries on through our family today. Mm-hmm. And and you think of 16 children, there were yeah. undertakers. My, you know, my grandfather's twin was an undertaker. There was preachers. They took that social workers, civil rights activists, even my mother's half-brothers who lived with my grandfather for a short time were activists. My uncle Ernest was in Nashville in the sit-ins at the counters. So that, mm-hmm. that idea of, of service, but also they really value education. And yeah. You have to be educated. It's funny, there's this new Isabel Wilkerson book, the one who wrote The Warmth of Other Sons about the great migration of Blacks out of the South to get away from all the stuff that J.H. decided to stay and deal with. She has a new book called Cast, which is looking at the U.S., how our society is structured as caste system. And you do see that. Sometimes it's not race so much as, as class. And education can sometimes skip you over a couple of steps right? But it was never just for getting ahead. It was always about service. And I think that is a legacy of service, of activism, of dogs that bark too much. (laughs) (laughs) What does your dad and what does your mom say? How do you think your grandpa would react to this current civil rights, Black Lives Matter movement that's happening right now? I, I think they would be heartened that it was happening, that this awakening was happening. But I think they would have also been paying attention to the dark undertones that brought us to this moment. I think they'd be very clear-eyed about this moment that we find ourselves in. I remember spooky 11-9, not 9-11, but 11-9 when we woke up and the orange peril was our president. And I got one text from my sister and it just said Reconstruction 2.0, that basically this was the same nation who had just elected for two terms its first black president. And now... We have this rabid, racist dullard in the White House who, I mean, that was a backlash. And just like that Reconstruction period had the backlash of the Black Codes and the racial terror and the Tulsas and the bombings and the lynchings and everything up through till people shook it off in the 60s. Let's start in the 50s when Rosa said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stay here on my seat in the bus. And again, all this is strategized because poor Colette Colvin, who was the black teenager who was first going to be the one to to not give up her seat. She was a pregnant teenager. She didn't send the right look for the civil rights movement at the time. They wanted Mm -hmm. the model citizens to make the case, get on TV, show what Bull Connor and some of those Southern governors were doing, sheriffs, the, the water hoses, the dogs, so people couldn't look away. So when the George Floyd murder was blasted into everyone's corona lockdown home and they Mm. had to deal with seeing that Mm. because we're in such a fractured media environment. I grew up with three channels on the TV. That's not the case. Now my kids, they're born with a cell phone in their back pocket. But during the lockdown and the coronavirus pandemic, people are, they're consuming the same viral bits on social media. And so it explodes. And I remember calling my mom and asking her, you know, I just need a gut check. Like, is this as bad as like 1968? Like, how does this 
feel this moment feel in, in comparison, you know, mm. because my mom was pregnant with me when Dr. King was killed. Wow. And, and then two months later, Bobby Kennedy's killed. And her and my dad had to drive. They were living in Baltimore at the time to go pick up my brother because the, the woman who was caring for him lived in an area that was being engulfed in riots. So I was like, so how does this moment feel? And she's like, yeah. She's like, I gotta tell you the rioting, the protesting, the mass movements, that she's like, all of it feels exactly the same. So I think that J.H., I feel like David, my grandfather, um, my great-great-grandfather, Robert Daniel, and, and all of my ancestors on both my father's side and my mother's side would still see those undertones of a country that has not dealt, has, it hasn't dealt with its original sin, or let's say its second original sin, because I'm sure there are many indigenous Native Americans who'd be like, well, I don't know that we can call slavery the original, original sin. Mm. Are you quite sure about that? But slavery is something that this country has never honestly dealt with. And it's evolved into redlining and Jim Crow and housing discrimination, something that the president has done and been convicted of. I mean, mm. these are not ancient history tales we're talking about. This is the world we live in today. So I think J.H., David, Robert Daniel, they would all just say, you know what? Keep your nose to the grindstone. You got work to do. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook, or call us at 1-888-318-DADS and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum. <laughs>